so the story is we started out as contently and people started saying contently and so we just went with that it just sort of went with what the market said do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit then you're in the right place welcome to growth everywhere this is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text bad hire, spell it out, B-A-D-H-I-R-E to 33444. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there. Hey everyone, in today's episode, we're talking to Shane Snow, who is the CEO and founder of Contently. Uh, Contently is actually a content platform that allows a lot of different uh, brands that want to eventually become publishers. They work with big dogs such as uh, American Express, and they're doing some really cool things in terms of um, you know really helping people you know take content marketing to the next level. They have over fifty thousand publishers, um, and they have a hundred enterprise clients and. Uh, they've been growing very quickly, and you know if you're if you're looking for high quality content in general, you know Contently is definitely the place to look to. Um, in this interview, we'll talk about how he grew the company, um, and also some of the struggles that he faced, and also what he thinks about the future of content marketing, some mistakes people are making, um, things like that. Um, he also shares a very interesting uh, productivity hack that I think um, you know that I, I think I'll be using quite quite. Um, quite often so um stick till the end look for that productivity hack you know you're sure to find some insights from it um it's you know if you're a writer it's definitely going to help you a lot so um enjoy the interview hi everyone welcome to this week's edition of growth everywhere where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips today we have shane snow of contently or contently shane how are you doing today i'm doing great eric cool so you know um just a quick background on contently you know it is it is a tool it's sort they help brands build tools to become publishers. Is that correct? Yeah. Essentially, we give brands everything they need to be a successful publisher, including uh, talent to do that. So we have 50,000 journalists that we broker work for. So we're also helping journalists make money as well. Got it. Cool, man. So let's let's start off with your background first, and then we'll jump into uh, you know more talk about the company. Sure. Uh, so my background, I guess... Uh, depending on how far back you want me to go. I grew up in Idaho. I studied computer science and business. Eventually, I realized that journalism was what I loved. So I moved to New York to uh, get a master's degree in journalism and uh, and became a freelance journalist. And I was writing about technology, which I loved, and startups and, and kind of all the things I'd done before being a journalist. And realized that all of my friends that had graduated from expensive journalism schools were freelancers and that the jobs were being turned from sort of in-house positions to variable costs. So because of the internet and because newsrooms were in trouble, uh, everyone I knew was essentially striking out on their own. And there's a whole set of problems that go along with, you know, being a freelancer that have nothing to do with the craft that, you know, say you're an amazing writer or amazing reporter, you're not necessarily good at building a website to market yourself to get work. Um, and so I was interested in solving the set of problems that comes with that. Meanwhile, a friend of mine and I, uh, a friend of mine was, 
looking to hire journalists, and so we kind of came together. Uh, he was building some blogs, and we came together to to form yeah Contently. So, kind of my background that led me here is you know the the business and computer science and entrepreneurship. Eventually, I was inspired to help people like me that were in you know in a sort of a hard spot and uh, and that's since metastasized into this business that is uh, you know is much bigger than than simply connecting journalists to jobs and and giving them tools to build a website got it cool and what do revenues and number of users look like today uh, so we're a private company so we can't talk absolute figures revenue wise but we uh, you know we have a hundred uh, you know enterprise clients and these are fortune 500 companies like Google and GE and American mm-hmm. Express. Um, and we have about 50,000 journalists, so that's approximately half of the journalists in America that have profiles on our site, and uh, they use their profiles to you know, market themselves and get work, kind of like a LinkedIn or a Behance for journalists. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, most of those uh, journalists have indicated that they're willing to freelance for our clients, so we have this huge amount of data around those people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, I guess, like in terms of where we are in the market, we're, we're considered the market leaders in the, in the particular space that we're in, and uh, the challenge now is actually that there are a lot more companies, a lot of competition coming in, and, and being the first is not necessarily advantageous if you're learning a lot of lessons for the market. So, uh, but yeah, we're we're doing really well. Got it. Nice, man. So, you know, 100 companies, they're more into enterprise space. So what if someone is like, you know, someone's like a technology startup and they know content marketing is important and they know they need something like Contently, they need to access this marketplace, you know, how can someone like that get started? Uh, so we don't really work with small businesses. Uh, we used to in the early days when we were sort of taking what we could get. Mm-hmm. What we've built is really meant for large organizations that have a lot of project management and bureaucracy, and uh, they can't be very nimble. So, mm-hmm. for example, when J.P. Morgan Chase wants to become a publisher, they want to hire tons of writers and photographers and run newsrooms. They also have lawyers that need to look at stuff, and they have like audit trails that they need to have, and they need project management. If you're a startup you you probably need a couple of writers and you know a WordPress install and, and a lot of hustle, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not necessarily built for that, um, but we do provide a lot of, uh, I guess, education and, and sort of free stuff for those mm-hmm. kinds of companies, and, and one day we'll probably uh, open up products for them. I would say the first thing, piece of advice I'd give to a startup that wants to do content marketing is check out our magazine. Uh, it's called The Content Strategist, uh, contently.com slash strategist. Where we cover the industry, we have case studies, we do education, kind of all of the stuff that you would need if you were running it yourself. Um, so I would do that. And uh, and then, I mean, I think depending on the size of your company, the advice that I like to give to, to startups especially is your best asset for building your brand through content is your founding team. And so I would think about how can you set up people inside of your company to be thought leaders externally. And rather than jumping into building a publication on your own site, you know, the whatever blog that maybe no one's going to read because you're small or it'll be a lot of work and you want to hire people, have your someone or, or all of your executives or founders start guest writing on industry publications where your audience is. So start building your brand that way. Um, there's a post, I think if you Google how to write thought leadership posts, uh, my my post on that is a, is the first result. I'm pretty sure for Fast Company, um, and we actually have we just republished it on on the content strategy. So if you go there too, uh, but I wrote a, a whole thing about kind of the strategy for approaching pub, real publications that have real credibility as a you know a, a thought leader, so that you can do writing for them. That's the first thing that I would recommend doing, and then from there work on building an audience, building a mailing list, um, 
so that you can then do traffic on or content on your own site and get traffic there. Got it. So, you know, and this is a very, you know, this is a pretty broad question, but how much should startups be investing into content marketing when they're first starting out? Uh, good question. I mean, like everything, it depends. Uh, it de- depends on the stage that you're in. So we do actually work with, I mean, we primarily work with enterprise companies, but we're starting to work more and more with like Series C, Series B uh, startups that have raised, you know, 20 plus million dollars. Later stage they, startups. Exactly. Because they start to have marketing budgets that, I mean, first of all, you know, most startups get like what's new in marketing. That's what's working faster than a lot of other companies. Uh, but they tend to have, you know, six, seven figure marketing budgets. And that's, that's where we start to make sense um, as a solution. Uh, I would say I'm probably biased. I think that content marketing is one of the most effective ways to build a brand and to build a business. And when you're starting out as a, as a tiny startup, all you have really is what people think of you. All you have is your brand. Like that's the one thing that you can possibly win in the early days before you have technology, before you have customers. So I think working on building that brand from the beginning is super important. And the best and fastest way to do that is through content. Um, how much you should invest though. I mean, it really depends on how much money you have in our early days. We, you know, I was doing a ton of writing. I was doing a ton of blogging. Our early employees were, um, and it took a while before we could even afford to be our own customer, you know, before we could afford, you know, like right now we uh, can tell you we probably invest 15 grand a month um, in, in our own content marketing, which is you know, maybe 20 grand, something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, and we're doing several stories a day. We have this publication that has hundreds of thousands of readers and it pays off in spades for us because of the kinds of clients that we're getting from it. Uh, but in the early days, we, there's no way we could afford that. We couldn't afford $2,000 a month. Um, so it was kind of up to us to, to hustle. But eventually we ramped that up. I think that's one thing that people tend to do is they don't do the lean startup thing with their own content marketing. Um, you know, they, they iterate and they do MVPs and all of that for the product they're building. But then they decide they're going to build a huge blog and they they tend to overreach and do a lot of sort of crappy content. You know, you hire an intern, you hire a full-time person to write for you, and it's just not that good versus mm-hmm. figuring out where your audience is, where the gaps are in the education that they're getting and, and how to reach them. And like I said, I, I think the most effective and cheap way in the beginning is to set your your leadership up as thought leaders and, and do guest writing. And maybe if you have to hire someone to write for them, you know, you have your CEO bullet out, you know, his thoughts on or her thoughts on, you know, X topic and then have someone write that for them. A lot of people do that. Um, I don't do that because myself, because I, you know, writing is sort of my own passion, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with, uh, with doing that. Got it. So it starts with the leadership first. And, you know, I, and I totally agree with that because you can kind of set the process up. So, Nowadays, you know, you're running this company, you have 100 enterprise clients, you have to manage, you know, the 50,000 publishers as well. You're, you're doing well with this company. Are you, are you still writing? Yeah, myself. So, I mean, less and less. Um, but I, I kind of had this paranoia about a year into Contelli where I realized that we're running this company, we're helping freelance writers, like real journalists, uh, you know, do what they love. And, and we're trying to know our users. And I haven't written anything in a year, um, anything like that's real journalism, I guess. And so I started freelancing again. Um, so I do, I do do a lot of stuff, not as much as I'd like to, but I, I actually spent the last two years writing a book kind of on nights and weekends. Um, and, uh, and that's done really well. And, and a lot of it has to do with sort of uh, innovation and rapid growth and some lessons from you know, the history of media and marketing. Um, 
so that was my big project for a long time. And now, I mean, I write a weekly column for Fast Company, and then I do a lot of uh, thought leadership for our own magazine and for like advertising age industry publications like that. So even though we're publishing, you know, fifty stories a month or something on our own magazine, when I do a thought leadership post on advertising age, that pulls new audience to our magazine, which then we can get as email subscribers and all that. So it all kind of accrues, I guess. Got it. Okay. Now, you know, for me, I used to write, I used to write a lot more. And now it's, now it's just like, as I continue to run my company more and more, it's just like, maybe I just don't know as much as I, I knew before. And I just get scared of writing because it might become like, it might be like crappy content, right? So what do you, yeah. what do, you do in those scenarios? That's, I mean, I struggle with this too, right? I feel like I'm so busy working on my business that I don't take my lift my head up above the water to see what's going on in the industry as much as I ought to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to have these routines of I wake up in the morning and I read the news, right? right. And now I wake up in the morning and I check my email and I scramble to work and put out the fires, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's tough. I think the process of writing um, forces you to, you know, you to be a little bit more aware, and I think. I don't know. A lot of the conversations that I have just in the course of business, in the back of my mind, I'm generating story ideas um, kind of in two ways. The conversations that I have, you know, I'm generating like these insights that I'm learning from other people. I'm going to write about these and forcing myself to write about them forces me to think through critically um, and to do some research and actually look up what's going on. Um, The second thing, actually, there's three things. The second thing is I'm uh, always, anytime there's something that I don't know, I turn that into a writing, something to write about. So, uh, what would an example be? Uh, off the top of my head. Um, so, okay, here's one we're working on right now. Uh, people ask, this is really esoteric. In our industry, people ask about what's the proper, what's the best way to label sponsored content. So when you go to you know, New York Times, it says paid post by mm. Dell. Or if you go to BuzzFeed, it says brand partner Virgin Mobile or something. So someone was asking us, or we've had these discussions, you know, what's the best way to label? How do you not confuse people? So the answer is I don't know. Like I have opinions, but turning that into something to write about. So now I'm embarking on a research project that kind of with some of our content team to answer that question and then write about it. And so that's a great way. I mean, you're suddenly introducing new information to the internet, which is much more valuable than just sort of regurgitating, you know, thoughts and opinions. So that's the second way. The third thing is because we have a content team that's running our publication. You know, we have an editor that lives at Contently. And uh, like he pretty much lives here. Um, and then he uses, Contelli uses freelancers and all of our tools to run this publication. All day long, he's covering our space. So anytime I have a question or I'm going to do a panel or I want to write something, I go to him and I say, hey, what do I need to know? Um, so it's nice to have someone who's like their job is to know your industry. And uh, and so I kind of use him as my my daily debrief or my weekly debrief. Um, and that's, you know, it's hard to do when you're a startup, but if you have someone that's that person, then, you know, lean on them rather than having everyone have to read the news every day. Got it. Okay, cool. So let's talk about, you know, customer acquisition for a little bit. You know, you have 100 enterprise customers. How did you get the first, let's just say the first 10 enterprise customers? So our first dozens and dozens of customers were not enterprise customers. You know, we were a startup, we were getting anyone we could get, we were Mm -hmm. losing money, um, those first customers we got just by hustling. Well, we did this. We had this sort of chicken and egg problem where yep. uh, we needed writers to get publishers. We needed publishers to get writers. So in the early days, we faked some publishers, where we we took <laughs> our own money and built these. We didn't even really build them, but we like put assignments in the system that were from these publishers, publications that didn't exist, and basically 
uh, threw it out there to the internet that, uh, you know, there's this company we'd heard of called Contently and, uh, you know, they had publishers that were hiring writers. And so we attracted writers that way, basically sunk a bunch of our own money into sort of hack one side of the, of the equation. Then once we had some writers, we went to publishers and I mean, it's a sales process. It was, uh, figuring out who we knew, who they knew. Um, and we, we made lists of targets, right? What are companies that we thought would be ideal customers for us? And we just try to get informational meetings or we try to work our way through our networks. Um, so that's how we built our early customer base. And then eventually it was sort of this, uh, this game of bigger or better where we'd have these like small crappy customers. We have their logos on our website and then, you know, we try to level up like rather than selling the same kind of customer, try to go like one shade higher and use those logos as credibility to sell those guys. And people are usually willing to take a risk on someone one rung down on the ladder, but not five. And so we did that, you know, we sold the next tier of customers and we used their logos to get one tier up until, you know, after nine months, our first big enterprise customer was American Express. Um, and they, you know, we sold them off of the credibility of our other sort of slightly smaller clients. We had, you know, mint.com, which was part of Intuit. We had, I don't even remember back then, you know, this is three years ago. We had other, you know, other sort of finance related clients. So we leaned on that credibility to get American Express. Once you have an American Express, you stick their logo on your website and you use that to get more finance companies. You use those to get, you know, a step sideways to get, you know, General Electric. And so that's that's kind of the game that we played is leaning on the brand equity. Like if you're a nine-month-old startup and you try to pitch NASA to, you know, sell them rocket parts, they're not going to buy the rocket parts from you. But if you, you know, can go to NASA and you don't necessarily tell them you've been around for nine months, but you say, hey, we've been making rocket parts for McDonnell Douglas and for Lockheed, then NASA's going to be interested because those names sort of convey all the credibility you need. So that's sort of our strategy. Um, the first 10 and even, you know, now however many enterprise customers we have now, um, in the beginning, it was uh, it's an enterprise sales process. So you, you go in, you try and meet the key stakeholders, you try and meet the decision maker, we figure out, you know, VPs of marketing, VPs of digital, are the people we need to talk to. And, uh, and there's kind of like an inbound outbound thing that we do. We have uh, content that we're creating for those people. So what are the challenges that, you know, the VP of marketing at a fortune 500 company that's thinking about content, what challenges do they have in general? What challenges do they have around content? We can publish stuff that would genuinely help them and seed that out to the internet and figure out, you know, how do we get their, you know, we have these personas of this guy named account dude, Derek, who's the guy that like is the, the techie social media savvy guy that is always like feeding ideas up the chain, you know, internally. And it's like, how do we get account dude, Derek to pick up on these stories that are going to be helpful to his CMO? Um, so we do that kind of content that gets us a lot of introductions. So we try and do, you know, splashy research that gets people, you know, to write about us and then gets people interested, you know, and that generates press too. Then the outbound strategy is basically identifying, who are the right people at the right companies? And we have this wall of logos printed out of all the companies that we're going after. Um, and then we figure out, you know, how do we work our way to those people either through LinkedIn is often the outbounding strategy. Who do we know on LinkedIn that knows them? Or can we send an email on LinkedIn to the right person? And, uh, you know, and then there's like sales pitch process. Usually now we have kind of junior salespeople that are, are younger, sort of a few years out of college that they do the initial sort of figure out how to get to the right person and, uh, you know, how to set up the meeting. And then there's a senior salesperson that then goes with the junior salesperson to give a demo, present the pitch and all that. And often with the big accounts, like the seven figure accounts, uh, a founder or, you know, someone from the executive team comes to the last couple of meetings. So 
you know, if you're trying to woo, you know, gigantic company, they want to spend a million bucks bringing in the CEO of your company to go meet their VP of marketing is a huge gesture. So that's, that's kind of the process that we use now and we're still evolving it, but that's, it's seemed to work so far. Yeah. And you know, that, that whole evolution process, I mean, how do you continue to adjust your, your pricing? Like what's the process behind that? I mean, pricing is a whole animal that we, we went through initially, we were just selling, you know, content. So we're selling connections as like an eBay or Odesk, um, marketplace model. So we made 15% off of whatever you paid a writer to do. Uh, what was hard is we wanted to work with companies that could afford to pay real journalists, real rates that could keep them, you know, with food on the table, but also, uh, do content that was important that would actually help your business. So quality stuff costs money in order to sell the kind of companies that had the kind of money that would yield that quality. We needed salespeople. So you can't just, you know, uh, expect Coca-Cola to come knocking on your door and just sign up, you know, from a web form, you have to have a salesperson involved. Mm-hmm. Those salespeople need commissions. And suddenly if you're making 15% margins and you have commissioned salespeople, you need everyone in the world to be your customer or you can't scale your business. So that was a problem for us. What changed our businesses and this has to do with pricing is we realized at a certain point that we've started building tools to facilitate this process. So like, how do you, you know, so you have these writers where you're a big company, you need project management, you need workflow. Um, you don't want to pay them. So we'll pay them. And you know, there's contract stuff involved. So we realized that we could start charging for those tools and services on a subscription. Mm-hmm. And so the deal becomes, you know, say you, you're spending a thousand or $10,000 a month on content. Uh, that's great. We're making 15% of that to cover our costs, but the subscription to all the tools costs anywhere from three to $10,000 a month for those tools. Um, and that, that is pure profit. How we came up with that pricing is we, I mean, initially we just tested the market. We said, well, we have these new tools coming out. Let's just new customers. Let's say they cost 1300 bucks a month and see who buys them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, a dozen people bought them in the first month. And so we said, okay, well, what's the $10,000 a month plan and what's the $20,000 a month plan? Um, and so we made this chart that's a very uh, kind of like business school-y chart of uh, like a graph with two axes. So this axis is uh, willingness to pay. So a lot of willingness, no willingness. And then this axis is number of customers. And basically you can draw, you can assume that there's kind of a curve here where there's a small number of customers out there that are willing to pay a lot. Mm-hmm. They just they just have that willingness no matter what it is. And there's a lot of customers that are willing to pay nothing. Um, and so we drew boxes basically underneath this chart and said, let's make three plans. You know, the people that are you know, not willing to pay nothing, but like not a lot in the middle. And then the people willing to pay a lot. And we said, what thing, what needs do each of these segments have? And, uh, and so we mapped our pricing based on the needs, not based on the, the natural sort of logical thing would be what's the hardest to build. Let's charge the most for that. turns out some of the things that the customers most willing to pay a lot, uh, were things we could build in a couple days. Um, you know, like custom contract management for the lawyers at the big banks, they're willing to pay, you know, a lot of money for that. That's super important to them. They find a lot of value, but you know, that doesn't take long, that long to build. Um, and they want to integrate it into our platform. So that ended up being the exercise that we did for pricing. We're still, we're always adjusting that. Um, but that's how we came up with our pricing model. And, uh, and then from there, it's about, 
you know, figuring out how do you incentivize salespeople to sell the higher packages? How do you, you know, get people to sign up for annual contracts or two-year contracts? And then you give discounted pricing for those. So if someone signs up for two years, we'll knock off, you know, 20%. And doing all the math around that is, it's, uh, I mean, it, I guess it's kind of like a spreadsheet game, but there is some trial and error there. And especially in the figuring out the needs versus willingness to pay, like that's the, the crucial thing rather than just sort of going out based on your gut, which is usually going to be like, what's the hardest for us to do, which is the wrong question to ask. Got it. Okay, cool. So in terms of, you know, kind of shifting gears a little bit, I mean, what do you think people are doing wrong with content marketing? What, you know, everyone's doing content marketing nowadays. It's, it's the new SEO or it's always right. been around, but you know, what are people still doing wrong? Uh, so there's a few things. Um, I mean, people always talk about like quality content wins and still a lot of stuff that you see is not quality. And I think there's uh, one of my friends uh, said the other day, what makes for great stories that people pick up and share and engage with and spend a lot of time with is uh, fluency. So being able to basically communicate in a way that speeds the reader along, like this is the internet. If you're slowing people down with your content, that's not good. So, you know, this has to do with the, you know, the language you use or the videos you use. Um, basically speaking to people at a level that uh, that gets them through the content quickly. Uh, the second is identity. So speaking to the right people and identifying with them. So a lot of times uh, companies doing content, they throw out the things that they care about again, but they're not, uh, they're not focusing on the audience. So figuring out who is it that really needs your message and, and what do they actually need or who do you want to reach really? And what do they actually need um, speaking to them rather than speaking, leading with your message and kind of what you think is important. And then the third is novelty. And I think this is a big one that so many uh, brands doing content marketing or startups, they say, well, we're in the, you know, pest control space. So we're going to do top 10 pest control tips like that. There's a million of those, you know, there's nothing novel about that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what people are doing wrong primarily is just not coming up with the kinds of ideas that, uh, that people find novel or that move them to, you know, to take any kind of action or to share. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a big one. The other thing that I think is a big one is uh, the way we're valuing the results of content. So this is a big problem that everyone talks about, like how do you measure ROI on content marketing? problem with that question is it's such a general statement. It's like saying, how do you measure ROI on business? Like every business is different. There's so many different models. Mm -hmm. There are great companies that are clearly attributing revenue to uh, the content that they create. Um, But most companies don't uh, go through the exercise of doing that. Or they say, well, we know that content marketing works because we read about it and everyone's doing it. And clearly, you know, it's building businesses. Uh, But then they measure stupid metrics that are, that come from publishing. So if you're a magazine or say you're, you know, uh, the New York Times, right? New York Times makes money every time someone sees an ad. So they care about how many page views they get. Mm-hmm. Um, or, yeah, like Business Insider or something like that. They care about how many page views they get. But if you're a brand, you don't care how many page views you get. Because people could go for two seconds and the media company still gets the, you know, the money for the page view. If you're a brand, you're trying to build relationships with people. Right. You want people to come and stay and eventually convert or say nice things about your brand or you know, whatever it is. You don't get that through page views. So measuring page views is actually kind of stupid. Um, and so what, what we think that people ought to measure is how much attention people are spending uh, with you or paying to you and how often they come back. Do they finish the whole story? How engaged are they? You know, do they come to your page and then go make a sandwich and then come back? Um, how much uh, 
yeah, I guess like real attention are they paying? And then taking it one step further from that, like how is that turning into a real relationship? Are people coming back, um, you know, over the course of reading, you know, with you or viewing your stuff, you know, how much time have they spent engaged? And then does that turn into, you know, subscription? They follow you on email, they've subscribed to your accounts. Does that turn into conversion? Does that turn into brand lift? And I think those two conversion and brand lift are really important. You can tie people spending X amount of time engaged with our content are, are X percent more likely to, you know, buy a product or to, uh, you know, to advocate for our brand, then that's suddenly stuff that you can attach a value to. And then you can back up, you can do the math and say, well, for every minute of engagement we get, that's worth, you know, a hundred dollars or a thousand or $2. Um, most companies don't go through that exercise. They say they get excited about the big numbers. You know, we, we got, you know, 500,000, you know, retweets or whatever actually that would be enormous but like mm-hmm. these kind of bs metrics like five hundred thousand uh, impressions on twitter which means that of all the people that shared to you you add up all their followers there's five hundred thousand of them there's five hundred thousand people could have seen your thing but they didn't actually like engage yeah yeah you're not showing like was the relationship built with anyone through that so i think that's uh so the yeah the two really are not doing content that's novel or or really speaking to the right people and not measuring content in a way that makes sense for business or the kind of business that you're running. Okay. And do you have any resources or anything like this out there on, on how to measure content marketing correctly? Cause I, you know, the way you're describing right now, I haven't seen a lot of stuff out there. On yeah. That. Yep. I'm trying to think of the thing to Google. Uh, so we have, we have a, a couple of really big things. I think if you Google brands are measuring content wrong, okay. <laughs> that's probably going to bring up uh, our post first. Um, but you could just do, contently how to measure content marketing and that'll probably bring it up too. That works. Um, yeah. So all of these questions, like, I mean, that question that you have, right? Like the reason we arrived at some of the products that we've built and, uh, and our opinions on this subject is because people asked us that we then researched it, we wrote about it and then that turned into insight for, for us as a company. So Got that's it. how we do our content marketing too. Cool, man. All right, so we talked about the, the the customers. You know, let's talk about acquiring publishers. You know, fifty thousand publishers. I mean, what's one big struggle you face kind of getting these publishers? Uh, there are a couple of things. I mean, the big one in the early days was screening. You know, good writers from bad writers, essentially. Like everyone, there's these huge communities on the internet, millions of people that are kind of the make money from home crowd, mm-hmm. and they're very different from the I was laid off from Time Magazine crowd that we were trying to get mm-hmm. the kind of people that could get us the right rates that could do the right quality. So screening those people was really hard uh, because desperate people are, they will jump through any hoop you give them. Um, and people that are more qualified that maybe have other options are a little more uh, averse to, or, or skeptical of, you know, long sign up process, like write an essay or like we did have tried all these things, right? Like tell us all the categories that you write about and prove it. And, um, so it was a big struggle for us for a long time until we <clears throat> we built uh, this uh, this thing that kind of changed everything for us on the journalist side, which is this sort of build your own portfolio, uh, like an about me or like a LinkedIn for journalists. We realized that most uh, most good writers were not necessarily good web designers. The best way to show how good of a writer you are is to just show your past work. So had people, you know, signing up for Contently and sending us links to like some crappy WordPress blog that wasn't well designed, that maybe only showed their recent work, but not the work they're most proud of at the top. Um, or they had nothing. They just had random links and they had to collect them every time they apply for a job. 
So we made this thing that basically lets you type in. So for me, I could type in Wired, Fast Company, Washington Post, and it'll slurp in all of my work from around the internet, figures out who I am and what my clips are. And it finds the picture, finds the headline, and then I can drag and drop and make it look nice. And in you know a couple of minutes, I have a nice looking website for myself that I can use for anything. So that became huge for us for a couple of reasons. One, it helped us acquire people organically. So we don't really do a lot of uh, marketing. Like we haven't done advertising ever for you know for freelancers really. Um, I mean, that's a lot. I mean, we've posted on some job boards before, but like, really, that's not been like, you know, for the past three years at least, like, not been part of our strategy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, people come for the free tools, and then they tell their friends about the free tools, and then that basically that product did our marketing for us. We're providing some value for people, um, but then of course that's also lead gen for us. So there's a checkbox that says I'm a freelancer and I'm willing to accept freelance assignments. So most people check the boxes who doesn't want that, you know, if you're a journalist, even if you have a full-time job. Um, and then the second thing that the portfolio allowed us to do, so you can see an example of it, uh, like shanesnow.contently.com is my portfolio. Um, but if you, uh, if you look at the portfolio, see that we've set it up, we've built it to help journalists put their best foot forward, showcase their work, build their personal brand. We have the logos of all the places that you've written for. Um, so that's great for them, but it also we get all of this data about what you write about and how good you are. So if you, uh, if you write only for content farms or you're kind of a crappy writer, <laughs> like the Contently robot figures that out. Um, and, uh, and also the way we built it is it's not really optimized for someone like that. It's optimized for someone who has clips from magazines and newspapers. So there's kind of this self-filtering thing that happens just based on the tool that we build. But then, yeah, Contently knows, based on my work, the topics I write about, how well they've done in social media, how influential I am in social media, and how I compare to other writers at, say, Wired Magazine on the topic of, say, robots. And so Contently gets this great picture, and it can, you know, we figure out uh, what reading level you write at. So are you an academic writer? Are you a blogger? Um, and that helps us make smart matches, but that, that solved our screening problem. So we never run into... You know this uh, this problem of you know bad writers masquerading as good writers because you can't it's your real work that's on there. Um, so I guess the you know the lesson for other startups in that is that you can often build products that do your marketing for you. And we don't have a huge universe. We don't have millions of users. And on the journalist side, um, that's because there's not a huge universe. There's a very targeted slice of the world that we're going after. And, and like I said, we have about half of the people that are in that slice, you know, in existence right now, which is huge and more than we know what to do with. Um, yes, yeah, so that's really how we built it. We also do a lot of stuff. Like we made this list of what are the things that are hard for these people? What are the needs that you have? You know, finding work is the big one. Um, that's, you know, what our company essentially does for you. Getting paid on time is a huge one. So we, we basically made a policy that, you get paid on your first draft, which is unheard of. Mm-hmm. Normally, as a freelancer, you're getting paid months later. Um, you know, building a website, uh, marketing yourself, ranking for your name in Google, doing your taxes, uh, and you know, kind of the struggles of the freelance, the freelancer in general. So we build tools to help you with those, uh, whether or not you're going to be our, our our user, sort of on the customer side. And then we also do content to anything that we can. So like, how do you do your taxes as a freelancer? If you're working through us, like great, you get one tax form. Like it's mm-hmm. easy. But if you're working on your own, uh, we have tons of information and content and education to help you do that. And that, again, gets us word of mouth and gets us good reputation, gets us invited to conference events where we can talk about our solutions. And, um, and it all kind of becomes 
it's kind of back to the thing that I, I guess I keep alluding to is figuring out what your users or your customers need in their lives and whether that's the product you're selling, you know, provide the value to them anyway through content or through tools that will get people to sort of fight for your cause and, and a subset of them to join your, you know, your user base. Got it. Okay, cool. And what is the, you know, just a high level overview, what does the pricing look like right now, small, medium and large? Uh, for so for journalists, everything's free um, except the fifteen percent fee if we if we hand you a, a gig. Basically, we mm-hmm. take an agent's fee. Um, for our publishers, it's uh, the subscriptions go from I believe thirty five hundred dollars as the lowest one, and something like six thousand or like fifty eight hundred or something like that, and then ten thousand. Those are the three main tiers, mm-hmm. um, and those get you a different set of tools and different set of, sort of reporting capabilities and all that. Um, and then from ten thousand up there's kind of like the super enterprise like if you're massive you have tons of lines of business you're doing lots of content then uh we you know we scale that up but you get discounts the more that you do got it cool and so, so we work with oh yeah uh, we work with yeah. with uh agencies for example that are working you know with say a dozen clients they shouldn't pay ten thousand dollars a month for every client that's ridiculous so we give them a discount as they scale up that's the kind of sort of super enterprise stuff i'm talking about okay cool good to know good for me to know <laughs> uh, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25 year old self uh wow to my 25 year old self i think i mean back then uh, there's two things that i think i'm bad at uh one is saying no to things that are good but not important um, I'm very bad at that. I would say start working on that now, 25 year old Shane. Um, and I've gotten better at it, but I still, you know, I'm not great at it. The other is don't worry about things that don't matter. Um, lately I have over the last couple of years, I've kind of developed this rule that I read about it somewhere on some blog a while ago, uh, called the 10 year rule, which is if you're, if you have a problem or a challenge or a decision to make, uh, or something that you're worried about, make the decision that you're going to remember in 10 years or make the decision that you're not going to regret in 10 years. And so there's a lot of stuff day to day that I, you know, my size of my inbox. So it can be as simple as, okay, I have 300 emails to respond to and it's a Friday night, but it's my buddy's birthday and they're doing karaoke 10 years from now. I might remember going to karaoke with my friends. I'm not going to remember staying home doing emails. Um, so that's just kind of like a way to live your life. And then from like a business perspective, uh, you know, when we started Contently, I had this, I was one of few uh, people from my graduating class at Columbia that got a job offer for a real journalism gig right out of school. And I got the offer after hustling as a freelancer right as we were about to start Contently. And so I had this decision, take the salary job that's safe or do the scary thing, which is sort of step in the darkness and build a startup. And I thought about, you know, maybe not necessarily in these terms, but 10 years from now, I'm going to regret not taking this opportunity to build something that like I have this chance now, I will regret that down the road. Even if it doesn't work out, I will regret not knowing, you know, that I, that I had done it and taking the safe path. And so I think 25 year old Shane or especially 20 year old Shane uh, was so worried about things that like really don't matter if you step back and, and sort of scale out a little bit. And so I think that's, I mean, that's something that I still work on, but, but especially back then would have been really useful. Got it. I, I think I think Jeff Bezos calls that his uh, the regret minimization framework or whatever it is. Either way, it's 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 the same thing. Yeah. I just thought it was interesting, um, and I, I think it's something that I, I tend to forget a lot. So I, I think it's a it's a good reminder. Um, what's one productivity hack you can share? 
okay, this one comes from a friend of mine named Clive Thompson, who he wrote a really great book called Smarter Than You Think. Um, he writes for Wired Magazine. Uh, research shows that when you're, uh, you're writing, the faster you type, the better your writing becomes and the more, like the better thoughts you get out. So if you could type 95 words a minute versus 50 words a minute, you actually end up producing better material and smarter thoughts. And, and part of it is you bang out, you know, whatever you're writing fast and then you go back and edit it. But our brains operate faster than our fingers. And so you lose so much when you're creating due to kind of the physical constraint of typing. So the faster you type, the uh, basically the smarter your, your writing will become. Um, and there's actually like real research on this, which is pretty cool. The flip side of that is when you're taking notes, take notes with a pencil instead of on a keyboard. Because what they found is that when you take notes by hand, you have to go so slow that you have to distill the ideas uh, in a way that you don't do when you're typing. When you type and take notes, you tend to transcribe. So there's these great experiments that they've done where they have classrooms sit in front of, you know, lecturers and one half of the classroom is taking notes by typing. The other half is taking notes by, you know, pen or pencil. And then they, you know, they make them take notes, the same lecture, and then they give them tests. And the groups that take notes by hand do better on the tests. Um, so, so that's my productivity hack. Uh, when you're taking notes, take notes by hand. When you're typing or creating or writing, type as fast as possible and then go back and revisit because you'll get more brilliance out of that. Wow. So are you saying, because I, I, I can type up to 140 words per minute. Are you saying I should just brain vomit when I'm writing? Yes. And then, I guess, organize it afterwards? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, um, yeah, exactly. You, so different people have different methods for writing, right? Like uh -huh. some people like to like be the slow and think about every word. Yeah. But basically, like research shows that uh, you get more creativity out uh, when, you, when you do the other method. You type fast and then go and revisit. Wow, Okay. So that's 140 cool, is huge. That's that's. I mean, I, I type like 90, and uh, I'm impressed with myself. That's that's incredible. Well, I've gotten up to 140 like twice. I'm usually around 120, but up oh, to 140. Do you, and do you have a productivity hack for how you get good at typing? I, I played a lot of uh, played a lot of first person shooters growing up. Okay, <laughs> yeah. um, that's yeah. how I did it. Yeah, um, cool, man. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna try that for sure. Uh, final question from my side: What's one must read book you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, my favorite book is the autobiography of Ben Franklin. Uh, he, and I love this guy because he was a lateral thinker, right? Like he came at problems sideways, not sort of linearly. I wrote a whole book about this idea of lateral thinking and, uh, and Ben Franklin really embodies that. But he's also a journalist and he's also an entrepreneur and he's an inventor. He did all of these things. He's one of the most innovative people. His autobiography is fascinating, just his philosophy and his story. Um, I actually made a... Uh, if you go to my website, shanesnow.com slash book list, uh, it has my list of favorite books and, and autobiography of Brent Franklin is at the top of that. Um, but that, I think, especially if you're, you're interested in content or interested in writing, but I, in either case, if you're an entrepreneur, I think that book will, will change the way you think about what you do. Okay. You know, I, I lied. I have one more question. So, you know, Warren, Warren Buffett tends to like to read a lot of, you know, biography or autobiographies. I mean, is there something special about autobiographies that makes it, do you think it's, it's, it helps you learn more? Is there any, I just want to kind of know what the process is behind that. Yeah, totally. Well, you see this pattern and I actually wrote about this in my book. Um, you see a pattern in really smart thinkers that make breakthroughs is they tend to obsess over, uh, you know, kind of people that came before them. 
and they tend to be really into autobiographies. So a couple examples, um, Elon Musk, who, you know, built Tesla and SpaceX and PayPal, he, uh, he, when you you see interviews of him asking him what books he reads, he says, "I read biographies and autobiographies," and like that's almost exclusively what he likes to read, and uh, and that's because he likes to get into the minds of these people that have done these incredible breakthrough things. Um, you see that. Who else did I write about that did that? Um, there's a whole whole segment in my book on this on this topic of uh, autobiographies. There's this great guy that I, I wrote about who his name's Dwayne Edwards. He's the second African American shoe designer in you know, in history. And, uh, it's amazing guy. He designed for Michael Jordan and kind of stepped away after he was at the top of the shoe design industry and started a, a shoe Academy, a design Academy for underprivileged kids from, you know, uh, sort of, uh, scary places that, you know, didn't grow up with like art education. It's an amazing guy, but he had this really hard road where, you know, being, you know, one of the first people of color in this industry, he, uh, just had a lot of sort of unique challenges that, you know, people didn't really get. People were nice to him. He had mentors and all that. But he he says that his personal mentor was uh, books about Jackie Robinson, you know, who also went through a similar journey in a very different industry. And he said that the things that he learned about the character of Jackie Robinson, that what you find out is that Jackie was not the best, you know, African-American baseball player at the time, but he was the one with the most sort of fortitude and ability to uh, sort of weather, you know, storms, I guess. And uh, so Jackie Robinson became sort of his mentor and his hero, even though the guy was dead by reading his biographies. So that's uh, something that you see a lot, I think. And uh, I mean, for me personally, I try to read uh, as many as I can for the same reason. Um, another one that I love is, uh, I don't think he wrote an autobiography, but I've read several of his biographies, um, Alexander Hamilton. So I love American history. H- Hamilton was this really, really interesting guy that changed a lot of uh, the way, you know, people thought about government and politics and finance and all these different industries. And he was this kind of this wunderkind where, you know, he's like 20 years old and, and became general Washington's like right hand man. Like as this young guy who was like a student and yeah, really cool stuff. And the things you learn from those kinds of stories, uh, you know, the mistakes they made that you don't have to make or the clever things that they did that you can map to your own journey, I think are really valuable. Great. I think that's that's really helpful. I know for everyone, we'll include these in, in the show notes. But everyone, this is Shane Snow from Contently. Make sure you go out and check it out. I know, you know, I, I've seen it. It's really impressive stuff. The quality of writers is amazing there. So thanks so much, Shane. Thank you. How many of you have experienced making a bad hire or had bad hires on your team? I personally lost over $840,000 on just one bad hire alone. So that's why I'm doing a free class called the five secrets to avoiding bad hires that can cost you $50,000 plus each. All you need to do is to text bad hire, spell it out, B-A-D-H-I-R-E to 33444. That's double three, triple four, and you'll be registered. I'll see you there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.